2, verses 18 through 27. And read along with me, and it should be on the um, screen behind me also. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame." You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're just so thankful um, for the privilege of gathering together. We just pray for your hand upon your word this morning, that it would touch our hearts. Um, you have promised a restoration and Lord, uh, we just uh, pray that we would recognize that as being through the person of Jesus Christ this morning. Thank you that you have restored our souls and you are restoring us um, today. And, and we just pray for your hand upon our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in, <clears throat> in 1991, there was this horrible out-of-control wildfire that, that spread through the Oakland Hills above the cities of Oakland and Berkeley on the east side of the San Francisco Bay. It, it was just a, a massive fire that, that uh, grew out of control. They, they couldn't contain it, and it ended up destroying close to 3,000 homes and over 400 apartment and, and condo complexes. 24 people died in this fire, and over 150 were injured. So it was just a massive um, devastating fire. Shortly after the fire, I had the occasion to be in the in the Bay Area uh, for work, and I, I drove up the 24 freeway, which cuts directly into the Oakland Hills. And, and as I was driving up there from a distance, you could just see the the devastation that that took place in this fire. You look at the hills, and it's just it was literally miles of of devastation of, of fire. And, and the freeway kind of cut right into the heart of the, the fire zone. And as I approached, it really was one of the most devastating scenes that I'd ever seen. There were only the charred remains of trees um, where beautiful homes once stood. The hillsides were just kind of dotted with these, with just the, the, um, the cement um, foundations and chimneys popping up. And um, everything else was just gone. It was kind of like if you, if you ever see a, a, a World War II documentary and you see 
these cities that were leveled by bombs. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Just all you see is just a picture sort of of what was. Um, but um, everything else just kind of wiped out. And, and I'd never personally seen such a devastating scene in my life. I've been back in that area several times since then. And, and in 25 years later, if you were to take that same drive up the 24 freeway into the heart of the Oakland Hills, you'd never know that that fire ever occurred. There's, there's no evidence of it there anymore. There's beautiful new homes and apartment complexes that, that look much more modern. There's vegetation and trees that are covering the hills. And the Oakland Hills have, have been restored, um, some might say, to an even better state than it was before. What was once a scene of absolute devastation and death has been restored back into a thriving community of people, restored back to its original intent and its original state. The book of Joel gives us a picture, if you look at the whole book, it gives us a picture of how God has judged the nation of Israel for their sins. He's brought locusts to devour and devastate their crops, and he's brought armies from the north to invade and, and dev devastate their land. And in this judgment, we, get a, a, we, we also get a, a prophetic glimpse into the future judgment of mankind at the end of time in what's known as the day of the Lord. We get a picture of how God deals with sin and how he feels about sin. We see the devastating consequences of sin, both present and future. The land of Israel being left barren and lifeless from the invasion of locusts and armies. A scene of death and, and devastation. But right in the middle of Joel, in chapter 2, the book takes an amazing turn and we see God having mercy and the land and the people being fully restored to what they originally were. Once parched and barren farmland, now producing crops. Lifeless trees, now bearing fruit. Empty threshing floors full of grain. Dry vats, now overflowing with wine and oil. And a starving people, now eating to their satisfaction and praising and, and glorifying God. A complete restoration of what the land once was and what it was intended to be. There's a message in the book of Joel for us today. We need to understand both the warnings of this prophetic book and the hope of both a present and a future restoration of what God intended for mankind and what God has intended for his creation to be. And so I've outlined the sermon today really in just two questions. Uh, the first question, what is it that needs to be restored? Why is it that we need to be restored? And what does this restoration look like for us? How does it take place and what does it look like for us? Well, what is it that needs to be restored? Well, before we delve in to the restoration that God provides in this passage, I think it's important to understand, again, what it is that needs to be restored, why this restoration is necessary. And, and to do that, we need to take a, a minute and go back to the beginning of the book of Joel um, just for a few minutes. I'm not going to go back and read it, but, uh, but we want to go back there and look at that for a few minutes and see what it has to say, because we get this picture in the first chapter and a half of the devastation of God's judgment against rebellion, locusts coming in and destroying crops and, and land. It says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. 
what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. There's not a whole lot left, is there, in that statement. That's devastation. That's death. That's nothing left. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of locusts swarming, but it's really an amazing sight. It's just dark clouds of, of just these millions of, of bugs swarming. I heard someone recently describe them as the ultimate biblical plague. When they swarm in, they cover every square inch of the ground. They just take and cover every inch of the ground and every inch of vegetation. Um, in a single day, they can consume food crops that thousands of people depend on. And I, I read where a swarm of locusts can consume up to 100,000 tons of vegetation a day. That's just an amazing thing. And, but this is the picture that God uses in the book of Joel to describe his judgment. It's an important picture that he's given us here. Listen to the descriptive language from Joel chapter 1 of what has happened in Israel over the course of several years because of their uh, disobedience. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. The harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of men. That's a pretty ugly picture, isn't it? And it's not just a natural disaster. It's something that God has brought on. He's brought this to bear because of the people's sin and because of their rebellion. The devastation described by the prophet Joel is intended to give us a picture of God's hatred of sin and what judgment against that sin looks like. It's a contemporary picture from, from Joel's day of the condition of the nation of Israel living in rebellion against God. But it also points us and warns us of a future judgment on the day of the Lord when Christ returns and, and God's wrath is finally poured out on mankind for sin. It warns us of the beginning of an eternal judgment and punish for, punishment for sin referred to in this book as the day of the Lord. Prior to Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, they, they lived in perfect, harmonious relationship with God. They, they lived perfectly under his love and authority, and they had perfect communion with him. And the world around them was literally paradise. All of creation lived in harmony with God's intent and, and purpose. Man was created by God in the image of God, and he was at that time fulfilling the purpose of a creature made in his image. He was what God intended him to be. God's image in him, in man, at that time was clear, and it was glorifying to God. But when Adam in pride took himself out from under the love and authority of God, when he essentially proclaimed his autonomy from God and decided to be his own authority, that's when sin entered the picture. Sin is a, a rebellion against God, against his holiness, against his righteousness, against his authority, and that sin has tainted all of creation. It's been passed down to every human being since. Because of Adam's sin, we're all born into sin. We're born essentially rebellious to God's authority. 
apart from Christ, we are in a state of rebellion against God. And in the book of Joel, we get a picture of God's hatred of that rebellion and his hatred of sin. As I stated earlier, it's both a, a current picture of the, of the condition of the nation of Israel in Joel's day, living in rebellion against God and, and his judgment against them, and it's a picture of a future judgment against sin and rebellion, a, a final judgment, if you will, where sin is once and for all dealt with, and those sins that have not been forgiven will experience that judgment forever. And I think beyond the picture of, of God judging sin, the description of the barren landscape devoured by locusts is a pretty vivid metaphor for what the consequences of sin look like, what the outcome of sin looks like, even in our own lives, in our own hearts. The soul is barren and fruitless. In the prophet's words, gladness is dried, dried up from the children of man. We were created in the image of God, but sin has corrupted our view of that image. We only see a faint outline of God's image in, in us. Going back to the Oakland Hills fire illustration, I could tell where the houses once stood. I could see the outline in the cement foundation and in, and in the chimneys of what was once a thriving community. You could tell what was there. But it was an image that had been tainted and, and ruined uh, by the ravages of fire. Sin has left mankind in an insatiable search for meaning and purpose apart from God. As sinners, we have a faint understanding that we're not what we're supposed to be, but we're always trying to find what we're supposed to be apart from God. And that thirst for meaning and purpose is unquenchable because our rebellious hearts demand it autonomously from God, from our Creator. Singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell summed up this search for purpose in her Woodstock-inspired song with these lyrics, We're caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. She was referring to, to Woodstock as a movement back to the Garden of Eden. Now, if you know who Joni Mitchell is or, or are familiar with that song, then you're really old. <laughs> Bill is shaking his head. Yeah. <laughs> as many in her day did, though, she looked out at the world and saw chaos and war and, and corruption, and, and she thought maybe that meaning and, and restoration to what mankind was meant to be might be found in a music festival in upstate New York. But if we don't understand the problem, we're going to look in the all, all the wrong places for the solution. But even our misunderstanding of the problem flows out of a rebellion toward God's authority. That's how deeply and thoroughly um, we're impacted and affected by sin. God paints a picture for us here through the prophet Joel of the devastation of sin and the impending judgment of God for that sin. Like the farmlands of ancient Israel devoured by locusts, our hearts are laid barren by sin and rebellion against God. And there's this warning of coming judgment against that sin and rebellion. And it comes with a call also to repent 
and to turn back to God. God hates sin. And no sin will go unpunished. Every sin ever committed by every human being who has ever lived has either been punished by God or will be punished eternally by God. And I'm going to come back to that statement in a, in a couple minutes. I believe in this warning of the devastation and coming judgment for sin. There's also a reminder for believers. There's a warning for believers. And it's the same warning. God hates sin. And we should hate sin. We get this picture in here, in here of how God feels about sin. We should hate it in ourselves and we should desire through the, the power of the Holy Spirit to remove it from our lives. We should not be people who toy with sin, who test the limits of what God will allow. Our lives should be characterized by a pursuit of holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness. But if we're so corrupted by sin, how, how does this happen? How does this restoration, how can it possibly take place? How is it possible that life can be brought to something that is so dead? What does restoration um, look like? Well, this section of the book of Joel that we're focusing on going forward today, chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, marks an important turning point in the prophet's message. Up until now, it's been a warning of judgment and a call to return to the Lord. We see the, the righteous judgment of God against sin. And Joel, as do many of the prophets, uh, tells of a future day of the Lord. And, and this refers to a future time when Christ returns and, and judges sin permanently, when the wrath of God is finally and, and permanently poured out upon sin. I mentioned earlier that every sin that has ever been committed by every person who has ever lived either has been or will be punished. There will be a day of reckoning for sin. There is no sin that is going to go unpunished. And that includes every one of the sins of everyone in this room today. There is a day of the Lord at the end of history that will deal with sin once and for all. But for those who have placed their faith and trust in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ, there's a day of the Lord that has already taken place. Not at the end of history, but right in the middle of history. For those who know Christ and who will come to know Christ, there's already been a day of reckoning for our sins. The wrath of God has been poured out against our sins. There's been a day of judgment against our sins. Not a single one of our sins has gone unpunished. God has not turned his back on our sins. He's not looked the other way as if we didn't sin. He's not winked at our sins as if he would simply ignore them, as if they didn't really happen. He's extracted the full payment and punishment for our sins. When Christ took our sins and bore them in his body, he experienced in our place the wrath and judgment of God against sin. When we place our faith and trust in what Christ has done on our behalf, we no longer have to fear the coming day of the Lord, a coming day at the end of history when wrath, God's wrath will be poured out against sin. That's not something that we have to fear anymore. That day for you will have taken place already in the middle of history 
when all of your sins were punished and completely dealt with and permanently dealt with at the cross of Christ. The book of Joel gives a vivid picture of the devastating effect of, of sin. But if you, wanna, you want the most telling picture of what our sin looks like, and then look at the cross of Christ and the punishment that God extracted for our sins. Well, in the first part of the book, we see a land devastated by a plague of locusts representing God's wrath against sin. We get a picture of the consequences of sin. But at this turning point in chapter 2, Joel turns his attention to the mercy of God, what it looks like for a barren land to be restored to its intended purpose and productivity, for a people once impoverished to be filled and to be satisfied by the mercies of God. In spite of their sin and rebellion, God makes a promise to a people to protect them and to provide for them, and he mercifully fulfills that promise. This passage, again, it, it had a meaning for that day. It had a meaning for the Israelites of that day who really did suffer the consequences of sin. There really was a plague of locusts that came in and devoured their land, devoured their land and, and wiped out their crops and devastated their people. But God promised to restore their land and, and their people. And that promise was fulfilled in that day. But there's also a promise implied in this passage of a future restoration, of a restoration of a sinful people to their originally <clears throat> excuse me, intended purpose and in, in relationship with God. Listen to the prophet's description of what this restoration looks like. He says, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. The pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. And then verse 25, in the middle of these descriptions of, of how God will restore their land, is this amazing promise. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust is eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. For us, the cross is the starting point of our understanding of sin and the barrenness of living outside of the authority and love of God. But it's also the starting point of a restoration to what God intended his relationship with us to be. And in this description of God magnificently restoring Israel's land, there's the implication of both a present and a future hope of restoration for us. When the future day of the Lord comes and, and sin is, is once and for all dealt with, those of us who've placed our hope in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ will not need to fear that day. For us, that's going to be a day when our restoration into what God intended for us is going to be complete. It's the day we long for. It's, it's the day that we set our hope against. The day when Satan and his legions will finally be vanquished, when the pull of sin on our hearts will be no more. 
when men will once again live in perfect, harmonious relationship to God under his perfect love and authority. The image of our creator in us will be perfectly clarified and, and restored, and, and we're going to eternally enjoy and delight in the presence of God. God will be glorified in us, and, and we're going to find our complete satisfaction in him in that day. There will be no more tears or sorrows, no more hunger or pain or, or stress or fear or regret. We're going to want for nothing. And creation will once again operate in perfect harmony with God's intended purpose and for his glory. The cross behind us, the hope of glory set before us. This future hope secured and guaranteed for us at the cross is the context in which we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to progress in his ongoing work of restoration in our life. The ongoing perfecting work of sanctification is an evidence of God's grace in our life. It's an evidence of the restoring work of God in our life. And it strengthens our faith and our hope and our resolve to persevere in Christ, even through suffering and, and persecution, until, until the day of our completed restoration to what God intended us to be. Our hope is in a completed permanent restoration. We have a future hope of a completed permanent restoration. But we do experience glimpses of that in our life today, but it's, it's temporary. This past week, my dad, who's, who's 92 years old, ended up in the hospital with breathing problems, and he has a lot of lung problems, and he just couldn't breathe, and he ended up in the ER, and he's been given some medicines and oxygen to help, and and we've been praying that God would restore his, his breathing. And, and he's doing that slowly over the days. His, his breathing is being restored. And, um, and, and we hope that soon it's back to normal, restored back to normal. Um, but I think we can see in these graces where God restores us like that, we can see glimpses of this final restoration that we're going to have. Um, but it's temporary. There's going to come a point where he's not going to breathe anymore. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? It's, it's temporary in this, in this life. When Jesus miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead, he still died later. So the poor guy had to experience the trauma of death twice. All of the people that Jesus healed eventually died. And so we're not in that state today. It's, we're not in that state of complete restoration yet, but we're moving toward that. But I do believe that there's hope for us today. In this life, in this, this beautiful picture of Joel, in Joel, of, of God's restoration. And one of the most beautiful promises in this passage is found in verse 25, I will restore to you, the years that the locust has eaten. There's no doubt a, that there's a, there's a future implication in this, but there's a present application also. I think it's interesting to hear the, the regrets of, of people as they approach the later years in, in life, the, the what-ifs or the I wish-I-hads of life. We look back on our lives and 
think, well, what if I'd done this? Or what if I'd done something a little bit different? I wish I hadn't done this. Things like, I, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I wish I hadn't focused so much of my life on work. I wish I'd traveled more. I wish I'd saved more money. I wish I'd spent more time working on relationships. Moms often feel guilty and regret over their kids. I hear things like, I wish I'd been more patient with my kids, maybe a little less rigid. Dads sometimes are on the opposite side. I wish I'd been a little more disciplined with my kids <laughs> or a little more rigid. Um, but maybe your regrets are much more serious than that. I wish I hadn't wasted years of my life pursuing destructive behaviors, substance abuse, sexual sin, illegal and moral activities. You might hear something like, I have nothing to show for my life but a trail of broken relationships and a broken life. Or they could be more spiritual. Yours could be more spiritual. I, I wish I'd memorized more scripture. I wish I'd been more serious about my walk with the Lord. I'd, I wish I'd been less captivated by the world and had been more committed to the pursuits of, of Christ's kingdom. Pieces of our lives lost to bad decisions and wrong pursuits and, and poor priorities. Some of these may strike a chord with you, but you may also may have your own list of things you'd wished you'd done differently or things that you regret and as you look back on your life. Well, before we came to know Christ, our souls were like that barren, lifeless land that had been devoured by locusts. We were dead, just like that land was dead. And that's true whether your story has had you at the lowest levels of society living on the street or, or whether your story has had you attaining the pinnacles of, of success in the view of the world. But here's the posture of God toward us. Verse 12 and 13 of, of chapter 2 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That's the posture of God toward us. God's posture toward us is one of restoration, of restoring a barren soul to life, of, of bringing life to what was dead. That's his posture toward us. He's gracious and he's merciful toward us. He relents over disaster. He's pulled back from us his wrath that we deserved, and he's placed it on Christ. He relents over disaster. When we come to Christ, our past is, is no longer held against us. We don't have to atone for our past sins, our past calamities, or our past failures. Christ has atoned for those. He paid the penalty for that. The debt has been fully paid. We don't have to look back with regret at a wasted life. We can look forward to a restored 
meaning in life that can only come in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to dwell on the past. We don't have to to just have this focus on what happened before. God has dealt with that. The barrenness of a soul that's been literally dead has been given a new life, a new birth. God declares us to be completely restored. That's his declaration. We're completely righteous. And then he begins in us the process of restoring our lives into what he has declared us to be. Well, as we come to a close this morning, I'd like to share a quote from a devotional book that Robin and I have been reading. It's from Nancy Guthrie. Many of the women um, in our church were at a conference recently down in Colorado Springs and had a chance to hear her speak, so you're familiar with her. But this is what she says. She says, This same merciful and compassionate Lord restores what the, confident, what the consequences of sin have taken from us. All the years of glad service to Christ lost to apathy and busyness. All of the loveless years lost to bitterness and anger. All of the indulgent years spent trying to fill up the emptiness with alcohol. And all of the Christless years resisting the Savior's drawing love. The Lord restores the distracted years when you didn't give your children the attention they needed. He restores the angry years when you were more likely to yell and hit instead of listen or love. He restores the demanding years when your rigid standards drove your child away. Take heart. There is hope. God can restore to you the years eaten up by sinful patterns and misguided priorities. He can deepen his fellowship with you so that your love for him can be greater than you've known before. He can multiply, multiply your fruitfulness so that your impact for Christ can be greater than it's ever been. The pure rains of the gospel pour the life-giving waters of salvation in Christ into our souls, restoring what was once dead into a life eternal as it was intended by God to be. This life-giving restoration flows out of an ugly cross where our sins, past, present, and future, have forever been put to death. And we've been freed from the burden of those sins. We don't have to dwell in the past. We don't have to spend our time dwelling on what happened before, on events of the past and, and, and failures of the past. We've been freed from that burden. God has paid that penalty. He's taken care of that debt. And because of that, God can restore to us the years of wasted time and, and poor life decisions and, and sinful patterns. He can restore to us a heart that's oriented toward the fruitful pursuits of his kingdom. Praise God. He has restored through the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what was lost. And I pray that you find both a, a 
a present and a future hope in that today. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for this truth. We were lost in our sins. Our souls were barren and, and dead. And you provided a way of salvation for us. And, and you saved us from our sins. And you provided forgiveness. And we no longer have to fear a day of the Lord when you will pour out your wrath on sin, on our sin. That day has already happened where Christ took upon himself our sins. And we thank and praise you for that, Lord. And, and may we go out from here today living as those who have been restored to new life in Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.